All right, with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the message today. I'm excited to get to preach to you the last day of the year. And I have a question for you. Have you ever been in a situation in which the wheels just completely came off of the circumstance or the situation that you were in? I mean, maybe you were going out on a date with your wife and all the bad things happened uh, on that date. Or maybe if you were like me, you started a DIY project and the wheels completely came off. And, you know, before long, you had water running everywhere. The house is on fire. Have you ever been there? Or is that just me? I had a wheels coming off situation this last week uh, at the house. Now, I feel like I'm a fairly handy guy. I'm not, you know, I'm not Bob Vila by any means, but I know how to do a few things around the house. And so uh, our bathroom needed a, a bathroom vent. That way, when you're taking showers and stuff, it doesn't steam it up. It's one of the things on the to-do list. Now, I'm not an electrician, but I know this is fairly simple to put in an attic or a ceiling bathroom vent in theory. And so I go by the vent. I get all the wire. I got everything we need to do. I've got all this mapped out in my head. And I get up in the attic and I realize that the wheels are coming off rapidly in the middle of this situation. Because if you've ever been into an attic, and our bathroom is on the exterior wall, which means that you have about this much space and you have about this much insulation, right? And you have nails poking through and you have to straddle the trusses, which are, in my case, 24 inches apart. So I'm sitting up there trying to work on this thing, getting stabbed in the back, about ready to lose my religion. Have you ever been there before? <laughs> like, like, you need, I, I'm a pastor, I had to give myself an altar call up there because I needed to repent of my attitude in this attic. I mean, something as simple as putting in an a, a, a bathroom fan. I mean, how complicated can it be? You cut the hole, you screw it in, you put the wires on. It's simple, right? Except everything that could go wrong went wrong. And so before long, I'm yelling in this attic. Knox is like, what's going on? Charity's like, I don't want it to say anything because I don't know what to do. But you know what? The attic fan is in, the bathroom fan works, thank you Jesus, right? That's how life goes for us sometimes. You start out doing something, you think, this is going to be wonderful, and then the wheels come off of the project. And sometimes that's how life feels, like you're going along, everything's just peachy and everything's rosy. And the next thing you know, you look around, and it feels like the wheels are falling off of life, and it feels like you're about to wreck, and you're like, well, how did we end up here? Well, today we're going to be in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at a group of people where it looks like the wheels are coming off. And those people are part of the remnant of the Jewish exiles from Babylon who are returning to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. We're going to be looking at the prophet Haggai. Now, there's some debate on how you say his name, but we're going to go with Haggai for the purpose of this morning. And he's given a message from God to encourage the people to complete the work. And here's what the word of God says in Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse number 1. It says this, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Boy, they had some interesting names, didn't they? The high priest, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet. It is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You have looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it to the home, I blew it away. Why declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld its due and the earth has withheld its produce. Title of my message today is Finish the House. And here's the big idea. A little resistance cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. We have to finish the house. Now, what's going on in this passage? Here's some backstory for you, a 30,000-foot view of what's going on. The Israelites are the people that God has chosen to bring the Messiah, who is ultimately going to be Jesus. The Israelites come from the people uh, from Abraham's offspring. The Israelites end up in slavery in the beginning of the Bible. And then, as you may be familiar with, God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. And we find this account in the book of Exodus. And what's interesting is when he leads them out of Egypt, he leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them a covenant. And in that covenant, God promises the people that as long as they're careful to obey his word, to strive to live out his word, then they would prosper as a nation. Plagues would not overtake them. Enemies would not overtake them. Their economy would prosper and the people would prosper. However, if they rebelled against God and they rejected him as their God, then God would turn them over to their sins and they would not prosper and enemies would overtake them. Now, the Israelites did pretty good for a while. They hit some bumps along the way, but for by and large, for the first 700 years, they obeyed the Lord. However, in 587, the Israelites have completely given themselves over to depravity. They have completely and utterly abandoned God and ignored his warnings, and they have and he turns them over to their sins. Uh, the scriptures tell us the Babylonians invade Jerusalem and they completely destroy the city and the temple. There's not one brick left on another. They knock the temple down, they destroy the wall, the homes are destroyed, and they take everybody as captives back to Babylon, basically as slaves. Now, God had promised them that they would not be in captivity forever. They have been there for about 70 years, and towards the end of this exile, God is raising up a remnant of believers who would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. And that's where we're picking up in scripture. Haggai is a prophet, and there's some other men along with him who are his contemporaries, Ezra, Zechariah, Nehemiah. They're all contemporaries to one another. So when we look at these different books in the scripture, we can get a clear picture of what's happening. And here's the thing we have to understand about what we just read. The remnant of believers returning to Israel was a miracle. It was a fulfillment of the promise that God had given to the people. In short, God was moving because this remnant was going to start rebuilding the city. We know the the story of Nehemiah well. They show up and they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem rapidly in record time because everybody's excited and they're doing all this work. And then they start to rebuild the temple. When you read the accounts, it's amazing. God had had moved upon pagan kings, and his kings had financed these expeditions and these rebuilding efforts. It didn't cost the people anything other than effort and willingness. In short, God was being faithful never to leave and abandon his people. 
They had lost faithfulness to God, but he had remained true to his word and to his people, and now he was bringing them home. So there's some excitement in there. There's some buzz in the air. God is moving, and he was choosing them to be a part of it. So now that we understand the background of this passage of Scripture, we need to then look and say, okay, what is Haggai speaking to? If everything's exciting, why is this prophecy negative? If, if God is moving, why is, this, why is it at a point where, where God's displeased with their efforts? Well, Haggai's contemporary, Ezra, tells us, when the remnant returned to Jerusalem, everyone's excited and gets straight to work, but then something happens. The wheels come off of the progress. And here's what Ezra tells us in chapter 3, starting in verse number 10. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord were laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. And the sound was heard far away. So what happens is when the foundations were laid for the rebuilding of the temple, there's this joyous moment. Everyone is happy and everyone's excited. They start singing praises to God. They're lifting up their voices. There's, there's a buzz again in the air. But some of the elders who remembered the old glory, the old prestige of Solomon's temple, were now looking at this foundation and they saw a discrepancy. They remembered the prestige of Solomon's temple. There was gold overlays on everything. It was a, a massive temple. The structure was done with the finest craftsmanship. The interior work was done with the finest pieces that they could find, the finest craftsmanship. They remember the glory of the Lord filling that place. And when they look at what they saw before them, this current structure, the scale wasn't the same. The new temple was not going to match the prestige of the old temple. The new temple was never going to look as good as the old temple did. So while everyone is shouting for joy, these people who remember the old temple start to weep and wail. They start to get sorrow for. And before long, the celebration that God had brought to the people is starting to descend into a funeral. The scripture says the, the celebration turns to mourning and you couldn't distinguish the praise from the weeping. God was working. God was moving the proverbial mountains, if you will. God had moved them to their own country to restore them. So why are the people weeping? These people are weeping because their experience was not matching their expectations and they're having an emotional breakdown. And let's be honest for a moment. 2020 did not meet our expectations, right? Personally, I'm positive that none of us started out this year looking forward or dreaming to the chaos that was going to ensue. I don't know about you, but I started thinking back at what I was doing the very beginning of, of this year. And one of the first things that Charity and I did was plan a vacation. That was a mistake, wasn't it, right? We were going to Florida, 
right? We were going to go sit on the sunny beaches of Navarre. Knox loves the water. We thought this is going to be perfect, man. It's going to be awesome. We're going to take spring break to work on the house. The wheels didn't come off that project, by the way. That worked out all right. And then we were going to take vacation in Navarre. It was going to be awesome. As we all know, spring break, March 2020, <laughs> chaos descended. The proverbial wheels came flying off around the world. All the plans that we personally had were ruined for that year. I'm sure most of the plans you had were ruined for that year. And our expectations did not match our experiences. And I'm sure if we went around the room today, almost every one of you would have a story about how you had a certain expectation going into this year, but then the experience that you had did not match that expectation. I was thinking back at the beginning of the year, we had our annual business meeting. I stood right here on this platform, right in this very spot, and I talked about what our goals were for the year. Our goals were capacity. That was our word, capacity in our facilities, capacity in our operation, capacity in our discipleship. We know what was not on the list. COVID-19, right? That's not fun. Mask, hand sanitizer, hand washing, none of that stuff was talked about at the beginning of the year. No one had those thoughts in their mind. Back to the Israelites for a second. To make matters even worse, not only were the foundations a discouragement for the people, but the people working were also running into resistance. If you read in Ezra, you'll see that the local people who had inhabited there from the Babylonians were not real enthused about the idea of the Jewish people returning to rebuild the city. So they write a letter to the Persian king line about the people trying to sabotage the work. So they kept running into resistance. In a lot of ways, we can identify that again as people and as a church to the Israelites because we run into a lot of resistance even as believers in the culture. Christianity gets a real bad rap currently in the culture. We have a lot of bad PR. That shouldn't matter to us. But as believers, when we look out and we see some of the things that are happening, it, it does wound our hearts to see the fabric of society slip into moral decay. So I think it's safe to assume that we can identify with this Jewish remnant in this story. 2020 did not shape up to be what many of us had hoped for. However, the perspective of the Jewish people was skewed. When you look at this, God's calling them out. These people had missed the bottom line. And the bottom line was this, that God was still working. God was up to something that they weren't careful. They were going to miss it. They were missing what God was doing because it didn't meet their expectations. But God was not there to meet their expectations. He was there to advance his kingdom. And so because their expectations were skewed, they were missing what God was doing. Think about it. You got a list of what God was doing through these people. He's working through this remnant by showing them favor in front of the king so that the king would grant them the expedition. God was working with them because he caused the king to finance the whole operation. God was working with them because the walls were built in record time. God was with them because they had a safe journey. God was with them because he provided skilled men to rebuild the city. God was on the move. But because the move wasn't meeting their expectations, they completely missed what God was doing. So what did they do? Well, they did nothing. They stopped the work. They laid the foundations of the temple, but then the weeping and the wailing started. And if you look at the timeline, they stopped working for 18 years. They just turned inward and said, we're done. They saw the foundations, they wept and they quit. They failed to be obedient because they were blind to what God was doing. And church, here's the thing I think we have to take as a warning. 
as an example, as an analogy from this. We cannot weep over 2020. It didn't look the way we thought personally, nor did it play out the way maybe we thought it would as a church. But God still accomplished a lot of things in 2020 that he intended to accomplish. Let me back up. I misspoke. God accomplished everything he intended to accomplish in 2020. Now, understand this. When I say don't weep, I'm not saying that we should not mourn with those who lost loved ones. When I say we should not weep, I'm not saying that we cannot weep and intercede for the lost people of this nation. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we can't weep because our personal experiences did not meet our personal expectations for the year, both individually and corporately. God makes a promise to work all things out for the good of those who love him, and we have seen God be faithful to that promise in 2020. I started to think about how I stood on this stage at that business meeting that I alluded to a moment ago and started laying out what we felt like I was laying on our hearts to do. And everything we said in that business meeting came to pass with the exception of one thing. The one thing that did not happen is that we said we were going to go to two services because we had to. Our attendance, if you looked around at the beginning of the year, was around 220 on a Sunday morning. It was getting very full. That was the average. A lot of Sundays it was over that, and we were running out of space. I can't speak for everything in your life, but I know personally God worked in my family and did some miracles in my family in 2020. God did some great things. Corporately, I want to focus on our church for a moment. God did a ton of things. And if we're not careful, we could miss what God did because of COVID. Souls were saved at this altar. I prayed with them. You prayed with them. We baptized people in that baptism right there. We got to bless our community by doing a lot of different things with benevolence and teacher's blessings and the comfort closet and donut drops and all these other things. God allowed our church to give the biggest offering uh, to a missionary in the recollection of the church's history to support a school in Rwanda. The range day was a huge success. We had a ton of guys there. We had 85 guys come. And I heard a testimony just a couple weeks ago. There was a gentleman I ran into that was there that day. And he said, my brother was there. My brother gave his life to Jesus that day. And I want you to know that. Best day ever. We had a ton of people show up. We had a great time. Absolutely. Our live stream hits hundreds, a lot of times thousands of people a week. DFL was a huge hit. Women connected with God and they built sisterhood with one another. We put in a new parking lot this year. Kind of a crazy thing to think about doing, isn't it? Talk about capacity. We're going to go ahead and shut church. We're going to go ahead and put a parking lot in. Why not? Because we know that this isn't going to last forever. You know one thing that wasn't on the list that we got to do this year? We got a new roof. If you remember, I told you the insurance paid for it. That's a miracle because I told the guy when he came by, he's like, this is an insurance job. I said, no, it's not. We already went down this road. He said, I guarantee you. He said, it's an insurance job. He said, the guy you had was wrong. I said, okay, fine. If you can make it happen, make it happen. And he called the insurance. The insurance adjuster came out. We didn't even argue. The insurance adjuster came out the first time. He said, yeah, this is an insurance job. We'll cover it. That was it. Okay. I was like, this is your man. I mean, most of the time you have to argue with people over this. The most important thing is that in our church and our local body, none of us succumbed to the virus. We all lived. A lot of us got it. But God was faithful in being our healer. Amen? God kept us loving one another as a family. So God laid a foundation in 2020 that if we just focus on the things that he did, we can keep going. So let's not make the same mistake the Israelites did. And let's not get hung up on our personal or corporate expectations. Just because it didn't look the way we had hoped it would 
is no reason for us to stop pursuing the things that God has called us to, both individually and corporately. Now back to Haggai for a moment. In this prophecy that God brings, I think there's some principles that we can identify with. There's some things that God says to those people that I think we need to remember in our day. God is speaking to the people and he identifies himself as the Lord of hosts. You will read in those verses and he calls himself the Lord of hosts over and over and over again. And if we're going to continue to pursue God personally and corporately, then we have to keep a proper perspective of who the Lord is. God is the Lord of hosts. Now, this is an interesting term. This term that God uses for himself is used more often post-exile than anywhere else in the Old Testament. And what that means is he is the Lord of all authority. So powerful for us to remember that the Lord is the Lord of everyone and of everything. He is sovereign. And when he chooses to intervene, there's nothing and no one that is going to undo his will or his work. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. No human structure can limit his mission or his plan. As Ephesians 2 tells us, the Lord has gone before us and laid out his plan and his purpose that we should walk in him. Why? Because he is the Lord of hosts and he will accomplish his plan. This is why a little resistance can never stop us. This is why a lot of resistance cannot stop you personally when you're pursuing the things of God for your life. Why? Because we know that we are filled with his spirit. We know that when we trust in him and trust in his word and his will, that he has the authority and the power to bring his plan to purpose in our homes and in our churches. When God starts to speak in this passage to the people, they stopped working for 18 years. 18 years is a long time. Why? Because they were focused on things different than their mission and their calling. And so they stopped. God was working, but they gave up. Reading between the lines, it would appear that the Israelite remnant stalled out because they were waiting for a better time to start doing the work that the Lord had called them to do. And now God is challenging this mindset. The Lord wasn't happy that they had spent all their time building their own homes, but they hadn't given any work to his house. Their homes were paneled. God referenced that. He says, why, why should you live in paneled homes? And this is kind of resembling the temple of Solomon. If you look at the structure of it, it was a paneled kind of mosaic structure to the inside of the temple. They were willing to work and focus on themselves, but they were not willing to be about the mission and the work of the Lord. And they were completely focused on self and they weren't focused on God at all. What this passage also indicates is that the people were trying to prosper. They were planting fields. They were planting vineyards. But their priorities were out of sync with the priorities that God had called them to. And as a result, God wasn't blessing their efforts and they weren't making any ground. We need to be careful to heed this warning. We cannot make the same mistake they did. God hasn't called us to build a building. He hasn't called us to build a temple like they did. But what God has done is he has called us as individuals to go into the entire world and make disciples. And what that means is that you and I as individuals have a responsibility to pursue the kingdom of God and make sure that we're advancing the kingdom of God wherever we go. That means we have a responsibility in our workplace to represent Christ to our coworkers. That means we have a responsibility in our homes to represent Christ to our 
families and to our children. That means we have a responsibility to represent Christ, be the fragrance of Christ in the community in which we live. See, it's very simple and it's very easy to start to construe and turn this stuff around and make it turn internal. God isn't telling us that we need to put roofs on and all these things. What he's saying is, is we need to be about his mission, which is to be his witnesses. We have to keep our priorities right. It's very easy for us to say we're about the things of God when we're really about the things of us. Even in a church, we have to be careful about this. God's called us as individuals to make a difference in the community in which we live. The temptation is always to just try to get along the best we can. The temptation when resistance comes is always to turn inward and just try to maintain. We are all notorious for that. We, we stop helping others out. We stop checking on our neighbors. We stop going to church. We stop checking out. We check out on our personal devotions. We think about putting all this energy that we have into our own pursuits. But what we will discover is that God will never bless that mentality. Why? Because we were created to be fruitful, and you can only produce fruit when you're constantly living externally. Why? Because God is constantly living externally. Well, how do we know that? Well, we just celebrated Christmas where God left heaven, came to earth. So the trajectory of our lives and our calling as individuals has to be to be God's witnesses into the world. As a church, I want you to know, as a pastor, we as a church are going to continue to go forward and look forward to whatever God calls us to do next. Those, we have to keep our priorities right. The word Haggai spoke to them was that the house of the Lord was a priority. And each of us as individuals have to stay on mission, but as a church, we also have to stay on mission to live out a culture in here that makes a difference out there. That's why as individuals in this church, we must always remember to hold on to values that we believe to be true, that we trust the word of God as our foundation for life, and that this is the answer for the problem of the world. Not our opinion, not our idea, not our political affiliation, but this is the solution to the world's problems. We must remember that Jesus came to be with us, and that fellowship with God through worship and prayer is one of the greatest privileges that we have, and we need that on a daily basis to stay connected to the Lord. We believe and value that God has placed his spirit inside of us, that he fills us with his spirit, that he continually refills us with his spirit, that we can go and we can be spirit-led wherever he calls us to go. That way we can be a blessing to those people that he calls us to interact with. We need to love and support one another as family, as believers, as brothers and sisters, which is a witness to the world. And we need to be reaching the next generations of believers with the gospel. This is the mission that we're called to as a church. And we keep our eye on those things. Everything else will take care of itself. And healthy people will produce a healthy church. So Haggai prophesied that God was calling the people to get back to work. So after he gave that prophecy, what happened? Well, if you continue to read in Haggai, in Haggai chapter 1, starting verse number 12, it says this, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet and the Lord their God had sent to him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the governor of Judah, 
and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. Here's what we learned from Haggai. When we're faithful to give people the living word of God, it stirs them up. And what we need as individuals, we need to be stirred up. And when we're stirred up, we stir everyone else up around us. How do we do that? By listening to the word of God and applying it to our life. When they heard that, they took it and they let it implant inside of their heart. Hearing the word isn't enough. Jesus said, let him who has ears hear the word. And what that means is when we hear it, we have to apply it. We have to allow it to go deep inside of us and stir us up. And here's what we understand. When we see this word, we know that God's faithful in spite of everything that we see. We know that he saves us. We know that he saves those around us. And we know that he's given us a purpose. So let that stir up our hearts. Let us trust in that, that God's going to do something. We look to so many things to stir us up. If I just had the right song or the right words to give somebody or all these things. But God's word is effective and it's enough. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to return. So the people get back to work. And less than a month later, or after less than a month after God sent Haggai with another message. And this message was very different from the first message. Haggai chapter 2, starting verse number 1, it says this, In the seventh month, 24th day of that month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I'll shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of the house shall not be greater than the former, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Less than a month after the people started doing the work, the Lord came and gave Haggai another message. And he called the people and he said, look, I'm with you. I know what you see isn't matching your expectations, but listen to me. So I'm in your midst. You don't have to be afraid. And let me tell you something. The glory of this temple is going to exceed the glory of the previous temple. He said, I'm going to shake things up. He said, I'm going to make some things happen. He said, why are you worried about the gold and the silver? He said, it's all mine anyways. You see, what the people were looking at, at the glory, if you will, was the external work of the temple. What's really interesting, though, the foundations of this temple would ultimately be the foundations of the temple that Jesus was dedicated in. 
was the foundations of the temple that ultimately Jesus was going to teach in. The foundations of the temple where the temple veil was going to be torn when Jesus died on the cross. So when God is speaking, saying, I'm going to shake some things up and some things are going to happen that you don't even understand and know about. The people who were working on this temple could not know what God was intending to do. The glory was going to be greater because God himself in flesh was going to walk through that temple. And here's the big idea and why this matters to you and to me. Because when we just trust God and say, God, I'm going to continue to do the work that you've called me to do individually and corporately. God, I know the economy's in the garbage. I know the uncertainty tomorrow is great, but I'm going to be your witness. I'm going to be your light. I'm going to be obedient to what you've called me to do. I'm gonna be your fragrance everywhere I go. I'm going to make sure that you get the glory and the honor with my life. I'm not gonna live for myself. We are building something with that attitude that God can use to shake things up. Because what this world needs, what our community needs more than anything else, is it needs an encounter with God. It needs needs to see God's people being God's people. It needs to see an opportunity for people to be different and respond different. I just thought of this story this week, and I had no intentions of saying it today, but it was a story I was reminded of. Um, It was... In the Assemblies of God, they have a national convention every two years, and this was probably about six, seven years ago. And at the time, the guy who was the general superintendent, his name was George Wood, and he starts telling this story of a missionary from the Assemblies of God. And his name was Stan Stewart, if I believe, if I'm remembering it correctly. Stan was a man who was just a a, a, a normal guy, if you will. He, he was, had a blue-collar job in the United States, just a good guy, one of those guys everybody liked, you know, friends with everybody, real involved in church, taught Sunday school, you know, was a deacon, the whole nine yards, that, that type of thing. Anyway, Stan's praying one day, and he feels like God drops it in his heart to become a missionary into Turkey. And so he's like, okay, I, I have kids at home. I mean, I mean, we call teenagers to be missionaries. We don't call 40-year-old guys to be missionaries, right? And so he was really hesitant to this. I mean, who wouldn't be to leave everything to move to Turkey where they're just going to welcome you with open arms, you know, to tell them about Jesus? And so anyways, he, he wrestled with this, and he said yes. Him and his family, they go, and they start learning Arabic. I mean, they're, they're doing all the stuff they have to do to become a missionary, which is quite a long list of things. And they end up moving over there and they're living there. And it's a very, very, very hard society in which to start telling people about Jesus. Obviously, everyone there is Muslim, either devout by a purpose or devout by fault, default, where it's just the right thing to do. You have to do it. And so he's over there and he's doing all these, these things, trying to just be a witness, to be different. And there's some cool stories how, and and this might sound weird, and he talks about this in the book, he got approval from, I mean, all the way from George Wood himself for this. He felt led to go start praying in the mosque. So they prayed five times a day. And he said, you guys pray to Allah if you want to, but I want to come pray with you and I'm going to pray to Jesus if that's okay. And he starts making a relationship with this imam. And so um, this guy lets him pray to Jesus in this mosque. And and some people gave him a hard time about that. That's a whole nother conversation. But he's starting to build this rapport and this relationship with this imam. 
One day his son comes to him and says, hey, I want to take and I want to give, I want to give the imam my Bible. And Stan's like, this is not going to go well, but I'm going to let my son do that if he wants to. And so he walks and he walks his son to the mosque and his son walks in with his Bible and he gives it to the imam and the imam takes it from him. And you can, he said, you could tell that he was very emotional in this moment. He took it with reverence and he said, he walked up and I guess in a mosque, I've never been in one, but they have a very high shelf. It's almost by the, the ceiling inside the mosque. And that's where they put the Quran. And he says, the imam walked up and put his Bible right there next to the Quran. And so he says, you are seeing all these these things starting to happen. Like I'm building this rapport, this relationship, and people are letting me do things in their community that um, a devout Muslim should not allow inside of their community. He said, I'm making headway. He said, no one gets saved yet. He said, but I I feel like I'm making headway. And then one day he just started feeling kind of bad. Started feeling sick. And so they were home on itineration. And he said, I probably should just go to the doctor and see, I don't, something feels off. And so he goes to the doctor and this doctor basically says, look, you have cancer and you're going to die. I don't remember the type of cancer. He said, we can try some treatment. But he said, this is, unless God performs a miracle on you, you are going to die. And so he, he leaves. Obviously, they're devastated. They go back to Turkey and he's over there and now he's facing this, this death and he's praying. He's like, God, what is it that you're doing? I've given up everything to come over here. I'm building this rapport with you. I'm I'm doing all this work for you. And now I'm going to die. What purpose are you trying to do in the middle of all this? And he said, clear as a bell. He said, I felt like God told me, he said, I need you to teach them how to die. He said, they have no hope. He said, they're facing the end of their life. They have fear. They have anxiety. They have nothing to look to. They're following this religion, following this rules. And he said, it's not bringing them any peace. So I need you to show them that in me, that they can have faith, they can have hope, and they can have peace. He says, so I need you to show them how to die with peace. Crazy story. Stan ultimately did die. Wife writes about it in the book. You can find the book. Here's the point of all that. Is that Stan was a man who did exactly everything we just talked about. He was one guy who said yes to whatever God called him to do. And that wasn't to build some big fancy ministry with his name on it. It wasn't to build some big building. It was to go to a place that no one else wanted to go and to show them what it looked like to have peace and hope in Jesus, to breathe the fragrance of Christ. And God was working in a way through his life that none of us understand and probably none of us will understand. But what God was doing was he was shaking something up through Stan's life in that, in that country. And here's what I can promise you. If we're obedient to say, God, here's my life, whatever you call me to work on, whatever you call me to build, I'm going to continue to go no matter what resistance I run into, no matter what it looks like. And I want to be faithful to say yes to you every time. God can use that. And the glory that he gets from that life is greater than anything we can imagine. It's not our glory. It will come at a cost to us, just like it came at a cost to them. But he'll get the glory and the honor.